Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 16, verses 15 through 19. If you'd like to follow along in our pew Bibles, this is on page 268. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I think uh, maybe Lent is a welcome break after these depressing chapters in 2 Samuel. So we'll take a little break and then come back to this after Easter. Uh, Last week we left off uh, with David leaving Jerusalem to go into exile, and we find that he has a handful of allies, a a lot of these, a handful of friends. Um, We won't find that many allies in chapter 16, going to be actually finding out who David's enemies are. And so Absalom has committed this coup against his father, David, and things just aren't looking very good for David at this point, and so he, he has to leave this kingdom that he's, he's built. And some of you may be questioning why. Like, does, can't he overpower his son? Doesn't he have uh, more backing? Doesn't he have a stronger military? Well, as a king, he has some things to consider. One of those things is he has these subjects, these people in the kingdom that he doesn't want harmed. They're just civilians. Another thing is if they go out into this war, then the infrastructure inside those Jerusalem walls, many of those things would be destroyed. And so property destroyed and the kingdom itself destroyed. The last thing, which I think is an important thing, is that he doesn't know who he can trust. But if he leaves the kingdom, then he has a pretty good idea, a higher likelihood as to who is actually loyal to him. Because in order to leave with him, they're going to have to leave their homes, most likely uproot their families and go with David out into the wilderness where they don't even know where they're going. So he has a pretty good idea, if they're going with me, they're probably loyal to me, but if I stay, I don't know. I don't know if there's some insider there for Absalom, I don't know if if someone who's going through a tough time at this time will just kind of turn on him if things don't get resolved quickly, so the, the more wise thing to do, the wiser thing to do is just to go. So let's first take a look at these first four verses where we find A gift offered by somebody at the same time being slapped in the face. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Hopefully not. That's terrible. But um, it's kind of an exciting drama, isn't it? I mean, people read the Bible and they're thinking like, oh, the Bible's boring, whatever. Like, that's not boring at all. That's kind of like a movie. You know, like somebody gives a gift to you and slaps you at the same time. I mean, that's exciting. Anyway, but there are several of these sorts of paradoxes, what, what appears to be a, a contradiction in this chapter, because how can somebody give you a gift and at the same time just kind of give you an insult and stab you in the back or do something like that? So here it is. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. 
With a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 uh, of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And you're thinking, Wow, that's really nice of this guy. He brought this gift that he really didn't have to. Here's David's entourage leaving the city, and he's just like, you know what? You guys might get hungry out there. I just want to give this thing as you guys leave. Second Samuel 9 is where we meet Ziba, or met Ziba. Ziba was in charge of maintaining King Saul's former estate. So when Saul died, Ziba was kind of the uh, executor. And so this estate now belongs to Mephibosheth, who is Saul's grandson. Now, David spared Mephibosheth's life when historically, when a new incoming king would come into power, that incoming king would wipe out the entire lineage of the former regime. And so that ousted king, everyone should be killed. So Mephibosheth actually shouldn't even be alive because historically, an incoming king like David would just kill Mephibosheth. Like, we don't want any hassle. We don't want anybody saying, I have rights to the throne. I don't want a military coup and nothing like that. So what was expected was that David would have Mephibosheth killed, and then David would just take all of Saul's estate and have it be his own. But David didn't do that. David had mercy on Mephibosheth, and Ziba was this main character of what is now Mephibosheth's estate that David gave to Mephibosheth. And so here we have Ziba meeting up with David, and he has this generous gift for David as he's leaving Jerusalem with all these people, and this is a gift. It's a, it's a generous gift. But then here's this slap in the face. And the king said, and where is your master's son? That's Mephibosheth. And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to, to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. And so you're, you might be thinking, Man, Mephibosheth, that guy's a punk. Like he... he, he he got his life saved by David, and now he doesn't even show up, and he says something like this. Because, you know, look at everything that David did for him. He gave him back his dad's estate. But the thing we have to answer is, is this actually the truth that Ziba is saying, or is this a lie? And we'll see in future chapters after Easter. But here is Ziba. Oh, I'm going to fill you in. I'm going to spoil it. He's lying. Ziba's lying. Here is Ziba who is slanderous against Mephibosheth. And this liar benefits from his lie in verse 4 because David's in the middle of, he's, he's in a rush. He's looking to get out of here and he just hears this news from Ziba and he just kind of takes it as true. So Ziba's really just slandering Mephibosheth. And David tells Ziba, you know, everything that I gave Mephibosheth, forget it. It's yours. You take it. That guy's an ungrateful punk. Forget it. Now, why is what Ziba said in verse 3 slanderous? You have to fast forward to chapter 19. And so we're not going to get there for like a couple of months. And so I'm just letting you know today so that we kind of fast forward in the story. But that's what happens. And just 
knowing the background of the story, you know that this isn't all that far-fetched because you can even tell by just what's happening in chapter 16, things just don't sound all that right. Look back to verse 3. Today the house of Israel will be given back the kingdom of my father. Like That makes no sense at all because Absalom is David's son. How does it go back to Saul? That, that, that makes no sense. How in the world would Israel go back to Saul's rule when Mephibosheth is the only heir to the throne, but he's not the one that has this military coup who's marching into Jerusalem, and there's no way that Absalom, who has the army behind him, just says, like, all right, I took over the kingdom. Here you go, Mephibosheth is back to yours. That makes no sense. There's no scenario that points to Mephibosheth being king. So for him to say that, it doesn't make any sense. Because if anyone is going to supplant David, it's his own son, Absalom. And so it stays within David's line. It doesn't go back to Saul. And if David just kind of paused and just thought about what Ziba said, he would have heard through the slander and asked some more questions and said, like, how is that even possible? What are you talking about? But this is what happens where, when we're in a hurry, right? We just kind of like listen to something and then we just kind of move on. Or when we don't pause and think clearly about something and ask questions and figure out what the truth really is. And sometimes people do this. You, you hear of slander from other people. And if you don't carefully listen to that and discern and ask questions about what they are actually saying, you might actually believe what they're saying and act on their lie on their untruth, that it's not completely truth. Maybe there's some elements of truth to it, but it's not the truth. See, Mephibosheth wouldn't do something this stupid. You just look at David's history with him. Why would he do what Ziba said that he did? He, he just wouldn't. And sometimes that's something we have to pause and think through when we hear things that aren't consistent with the character of those being talked about. Could what I'm hearing from somebody else be slander against the other person? And in the case of Ziba against Mephibosheth, this was slander. You can't always believe what you hear. We have to pause. We have to check it out. We have to ask questions. We have to discern. And if you're in a hurry to leave, you're not going to be that discerning. You're just going to take off. Now, why would Ziba do such a thing to David and Mephibosheth? Well, think about his position. Mephibosheth was this crippled grandson of Saul. And so Ziba, before Mephibosheth showed up, he was the guardian of this estate. And then this kid shows up, and then David takes everything away from what Ziba was in charge of and gives it to Mephibosheth. And so he's thinking in his head, Mephibosheth, anyone of that lineage should have been wiped out a while ago, so I don't have to worry. I'm going to live pretty nice because I have control over this entire state. My family's going to enjoy living in these palaces. We're going to enjoy all this good food. We're going to enjoy some really nice living because I'm in control of all this stuff, and I'm pulling the strings as what gets where and how, how things get used up. And then this kid shows up, and that's not the case anymore. And instead of being a guardian and executor of this great estate that he controlled prior to Mephibosheth showing up, he is now just a caretaker. 
that he's now using those funds to take care of Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth's family, and it's not the same thing. He's not enjoying, like, whichever room he wants to live in. Now he's in servants' quarters. And now, instead of enjoying kind of like living as a king or as a prince, he has to realize, "I'm, I'm a servant, and I'm serving that guy who is Saul's grandson, and it's not the same anymore. Mephibosheth calls the shots now. He determines what I can and cannot do. And it's to benefit Mephibosheth instead of Ziba using the estate to benefit himself and his own family. And so here's this opportunity for Ziba to find favor for himself to David by, by giving this great gift to David, who's leaving in a hurry, going on the run. And the thought is, you know what? If David wins and he returns as king... Can you imagine what he's going to do for me? Like, I, I gave him two donkeys full of food and all this kind of stuff right as he's going out, like escorting him out. He's going to come back and he's going to take care of me. He's going to remember Ziba was out there and he fed all these people. And, and then there's the other side of it too. This guy's smart. He's playing both sides. Because he's thinking, you know what, if, if he loses and if he catches that I was lying about Mephibosheth, and he is king, and he catches me, then, you know what, I can still get a gift because I can just apologize and say, like, sorry, I, I didn't know I'd do, but I did give you a lot of food with all these people, didn't I? So how can you kill me? How can you penalize me for that? I did a really good thing. So he's, he's playing all these different angles, and then to think, you know, if David is defeated by Absalom, and Absalom takes the throne, it's just not a big deal to me. I only gave, like, two donkeys of food. Well, what, what is he going to... Nothing's, nothing's bad. I, I'm still staying behind in Jerusalem. I didn't go with David. It's like, this stuff's not even mine anyway. This is Mephibosheth's stuff, and, and I can just keep living the way that I live. And so if he's confronted with providing David a gift, he can play dumb. He can, he can pretend, I, I didn't know what was going on. Um, uh, David stole all that stuff from me by force. He just took it from me. Or Mephibosheth, he's the one that made me do it. He told me to do that. And he can come up with all these different excuses that don't affect him. And, you know, we, we do this sort of Ziba thing too, don't we? We kind of hedge our bets and we kind of like play different angles and we kind of like try to figure things out and we, we give a gift, and at the same time, it's just not the complete truth. There's like an angle to it. And here's one that we kind of do often, and here's something that we sometimes do pretty often as Christians, is that we'll say that we're going to pray for you. Oh, I want to pray for you. We say this a lot, and those prayers are a gift. We, we give these gifts. But then the question is, like, do you really pray for them? Or in the back of your mind, you're thinking, like, oh, they deserve that. Like, well, look at what they did. Like, and you have these, like, comments and these things, this running commentary in your mind uh, while you're doing that. So it's, it's this offering of a gift, but at the same time, it's kind of deceptive because either you didn't pray or you have these other thoughts in your mind as you said you were going to pray for them. And I've been guilty of this. You know, most of the time today, I'm actually really good and when I say I'm going to pray for someone, I actually do because I actually do it right away. And if I don't do it right away, then I either forget or something happens and then I, and then I don't do it. But I usually pray right away. So nowadays I'm pretty good at this. But the reason why I'm pretty good at this is because I heard a sermon from a pastor that said, 
this thing about prayer. And, and when you say that you, 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 when you say you're going to pray for somebody and you actually don't, I'm like, you know, I've done that. And I've been convicted by it. But we do things like this, where we are blessed by someone like a David and then with the same mouth that we thank that person for and we spoke praises for, just a little bit later, we start slandering them. And we do things like this. Unfortunately, this has been done to me so many times. So many times. Pastor Albert, thank you for this. Pastor Albert, all this kind of stuff. And I can pull those emails, and I can pull the very same emails just like a little time later where that same person is slandering me for things that I haven't done. And it's probably happened to you too. The same person who says, thank you, you're the greatest. You helped me so much. And then some time goes by and you're accused of these things that you're like, what? Again, we do things like this. We're just these walking contradictions. And we walk around exhibiting care and friendship, but we're not always consistent with that, are we? And it becomes more of an image thing where we want to per be perceived as one thing when we're really not, like prayer. You actually don't have to tell people that you're praying for them. You can just do it. Just pray for them. You don't have to come up with this image of like saying like, oh, I'm a prayer warrior and I pray for you and I do all this stuff. You, you can just do it. We don't have to present an image of ourselves to be more than we really are. And we all struggle like Ziba in being this walking contradiction. Ziba is slanderous and deceptive while at the same time he's really generous with the gift for David and his followers to survive off for a while. And there's a good thing about Ziba, but there's also a not-so-good thing about Ziba simultaneously, just like us. And yet God uses us walking contradictions. It's one of those mysteries about God, that God uses who he uses, and it's for his glory. And oftentimes the people that he uses don't fit who we think they should be. Here's the a second contradiction that we find in verses 5 through 14. A uh, second paradox in that there is grace and at the same time there is hatred. And you're just thinking, like, how can that be? And it's the same thing as someone giving a, a wonderful gift and at the same time slapping you upside the head. It's like, how can that be? But there are these kind of so-called contradictions in grace within the Bible. And here's the second one here, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so here's Shimei, who belonged to the house of Saul, that previous ruling regime. And again, a person David could have killed because he belonged to the house of Saul. But he didn't. And this guy comes out and throwing stones at David and cursing at David. And again, it's just like, I let you live. And you're now doing this? Verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. 
And the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say why I have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. All right, we're going to dig a little bit more into verse 12 because we might read this differently based off of how it's translated in the ESV, the translation of the Bible that we're reading from. So if we look at the Hebrew text, it sounds different. The perception is different. It reads more like, it may be that the Lord will look upon my iniquity and return to me good. And the key part of there is, my iniquity, and it's not really on the wrong done to me. That changes things, doesn't it? It changes things pretty drastically. It's very different because the Hebrew is pointing out that it's David's iniquity, my iniquity, and not something that was done to him, that it was his own doing, that he did something sinful. And this is significant because what's happening to David goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. And we've gone back to this multiple times in these last couple chapters. So let's read that again. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord... Here it is. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So it goes back to this prophecy, and it is David's iniquity, not something that someone did that was wrongfully done to him, but it's this prophecy that is being fulfilled. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. And that needs to remain in our minds as we read through all the way through chapter 20, as this prophecy is governing the story through chapter 20. And David knows this prophecy. He, he knows what he did. And what's going to happen and those consequences from what he did. He knows he's forgiven. God forgave him. But he knows that there's an, there, there are consequences for his iniquity, for his sin. And so he recognizes that, that Shimei is part of this with his hatred towards David. And he also recognizes at the same time God's grace. It may be that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And this is important for us to recognize today. It's important for us to recognize in order to experience peace for ourselves. And David has this deep-rooted confidence in God and God's amazing grace. That God can replace curses with blessings. God's pronouncement of our guilt from sin is made by the same God who declares our innocence. Seems contradictory. That's paradoxical. And you notice that David 
is not the one to declare that this is true. He's not your name it, claim it type of person. He says in verse 12, it may be. It may be. He knows that God is the God who decides, and he's, he's humble about it, and he's humble to know that God is God, and God chooses what God does, and he doesn't tell God what to do. He says, it may be. David knows God's character, and that God has been gracious to him before, that God is a gracious God who looks at our iniquity and can still bless us. And not that this is what always happens with God, but it may be. He's done it before. He's gracious. And we've experienced it. We, we've read it in the scriptures. We've seen it in our own lives. We, we, we can see it around us that he's in control and he does what he does. That God's compassion for, for David, for you, is more than we could ever imagine. Even when God is disciplining us for our own iniquity. And so this is very hopeful for us that we, we are not above God's grace. And I really hope that we are instruments to share this good news with others and, and that we are not the type of people to express to others that, you know, what you've done is beyond God's grace. What you've done is not forgivable. What you've done, you have to do more penance for that. I mean, isn't this what Easter's all about? As we enter this time of Lent and, and we're changing gears to observe Lent starting Wednesday. And yet, Christians are often the people who are trampling on God's commandments. And Christians are also the same people who are trampling on God's people and Christians defying the word of God. And, and when we do that, we, we hurt people. When we repent, we receive forgiveness. And it's not just that God tolerates us. God fully receives those who fully repent. Those who truly repent are welcome back to the table of God. And those who truly repent are not to be outcasts. And you look at David. You look at David's view of God. He sees a God who reverses curses and blessings. It may be. And Jesus did that on the cross for us. Where Jesus became a curse for us and he blesses us. Here's a third paradox. Here's, a, here's what may look like another contradiction. And it's there's truth and then there's betrayal. Like, how can those things kind of go together, that there's truth and betrayal at the same time? Now, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, so I will serve you. And so Hushai is actually a friend of David who is an insider. He's a spy. He's pretending to be on Absalom's side. And he's offering his counsel to Absalom. And we'll hear more about Hushai in chapter 17. 
In verse 15, we read of Ahithophel. And so Ahithophel is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. That's who this guy is. Ahithophel was the former senior advisor to King David. Now he's advising Absalom, who has this coup going on. He's advising the treacherous, treasonous son. So Ahithophel is, is committing treason. Now let's read Psalm 55, starting in verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Ahithophel is that guy in Psalm 55. So hurtful, so disappointing, so detestable. Let's carry on, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. And so Ahithophel... It's a valuable chess piece. You, we read of this that his counsel was as if one consulted the word of God, that his counsel was esteemed, that this guy really knew what he was doing, that he's a great strategist, he's an incredible advisor, he is accurate, he is prepared, he is strategic, he knows the ins and outs of governance and politics, and he knew exactly what Absalom needed to do when he was asked in verses 20 through 22. Now at this time in history, this was a visible assault on the king's position to have relations with the king's concubines. And it was a, a visible, public dethroning of the king's place for Absalom to have relations with ten of David's concubines who stayed behind to take care of David's palace. And so this is a direct attack on the king to show that Absalom has taken over the king's throne and we're going to make it very public for everyone to see. We're going to put this tent up. Everyone can see it, see what's happening. And we are declaring we are now on top. And so Ahithophel, who advises Absalom to carry out this prophecy of chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. I mean, isn't that exactly what's happening? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And so this is a word of judgment on David. The ironic thing is that it's Ahithophel who's delivering this truth while he's betraying David. I mean, it's so crazy. And God is using Ahithophel to carry out the truth of his word, even though it's Ahithophel who thinks that this thing is our sign that we have overthrown David. But in actuality, what's happening is, is he's actually fulfilling God's word. 
and even in Ahithophel's betrayal, that God is in control, and the betrayal serves God's truth. This is such a paradox, and this is such a mysterious way that God works, that even betrayers, treasonous people like Ahithophel, are controlled by the truth of God. And it's the same for Judas Iscariot, who was a betrayer, who fulfilled the prophecies of God as we are entering into Easter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now, that word betrayed has a literal interpretation in English, and it's being handed over. So, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was being handed over, took bread. And this is often interpreted as Judas doing this thing. But this handing over is deeper than that. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave, and it's the same Greek verb, handed over him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, that's so paradoxical. It seems contradictory. How can that be? So did Judas Iscariot hand Jesus over? Yes, in a way. But the thing is, is that Jesus was already handed over in the design and the decision that God made way before then. That the betrayer was just serving God's design and decision. That, that Judas was just part of this prophecy. And so we see that the truth and the betrayal, this seemingly contradiction, is just mysteriously being worked out by God. I hope that all of these contradictions and mysteries are an encouragement to you. Because even when things seem contradictory, paradoxical, and you just can't make sense of these things, to realize God's in control. God foreknew all these things. And he's in control in such a beautiful way that his glory shines all the brighter in what seems to be an unredeemable time, an unforgivable action. All these things that we write off, God says, not quite. That even in the midst of slander, in the midst of deception, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of betrayal, God is still in control of these things that seem to be contradictory to us and still brings about his gifts, his provisions, his grace, his truth. All those things still ring true even though there's these contradictions and paradoxes of, of how that stuff is going about, that he's still in control of all of it. Let's pray, our mighty God. God Almighty, how you do these things is uh, just absolutely incredible. That we aren't beyond ourselves, sin, and enemy, um, that, that you are in, indeed in control. 
And as we enter into this time of Lent and enter into this Easter season, Lord, may we keep that in mind. And if we are discouraged, if we just feel like, are you really there for any sort of negative thing that's going on, that there's this paradox, that there's this contradiction that seemingly redeems all those negative things, that you are indeed all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-giving. And so, Lord Jesus, may you help us to focus our mind, our heart, our spirit, our soul into this next season as we enter in a time knowing, pointing to the good news that this iniquity that we all have, yes, we have these consequences, but we are not forgotten, that we are being redeemed by what you've done, Jesus, on the cross. In your name, amen. If you have communion elements, let's take those out. And if you need them, uh, just put up your hand and uh, we can get those to you. This wafer on the top of, this, of these elements symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. That any iniquity that we've committed is not beyond redemption, is not beyond forgiveness. That he became a curse for us so that we would be blessed. We take this in Jesus' name. And the fruit of the vine, symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us, washing us, cleansing us of our iniquities. Let's take this together in Jesus' name. Lord God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your truth. We love you. Amen.